In days of old, the Lord in spirit did behold high on a lofty throne, in splendor bright with robes that filled the temple courts with light. Above the throne were flaming seraphim. Six wings had they, these messengers of him. With two, they veiled their faces, as was right. With two, they humbly hid their feet from sight, and with the other two, aloft they soared, one to the other called and praised the Lord. Holy is God, the Lord of Sabaoth. Holy is God, the Lord of Sabaoth. Holy is God, the Lord of Sabaoth. His glory fills the heavens and the earth. The beams and lintels trembled at the cry. And clouds of smoke and rack the throne on high. Dr. Martin Luther, hymn 960 in our hymnal, Isaiah Mighty Seer. Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, saw Jesus, not yet incarnate, high and lifted up on a throne, as was just described. That's Isaiah chapter 6. If you'd like to get a taste of that this week, go read verses 1 through 13 and see what he saw. He, Ezekiel, and St. John all get this particular sight, and it is indeed glorious. But it starts for Isaiah, his story, with this vision in the year that King Uzziah died. And if you're like me, a week ago, you're like, don't even know. Really, pastor, MDiv, four years postgraduate work, and I've been preaching for 17 now, and Uzziah, you got me. Actually, now I do, and I'm going to tell you, because the story of Uzziah and his, his son, oh, let me get it right for sure, Jotham, and his son Ahaz, and his son Hezekiah, and his son Manasseh is the story of Isaiah's life, and you might remember uh, Uzziah is only one generation removed from Joram. Joram's that little baby boy whose grandma tried to kill him and killed all his brothers and got smuggled out, who gets raised in the house of the high priest Zechariah. Uh, excuse me, that's not his name. The high priest, not going to get it, with the high priest's son Zechariah. They're raised together in the same home. He's restored to the throne. He takes the kingdom back. He rules for many years, but then after that high priest's death, whose name, sadly, I forget at the moment, he ends up killing his you know, adopted brother, Zechariah, or allowing him to be killed at the whims of the evil men of the times. His kingdom continues to last. His son is named Amaziah, and Amaziah is not around for long. Amaziah decides to go to war against the northern kingdom and really just gets them all trashed. Judah gets trashed in this war. He comes back, his people kill him, and they make Uzziah, the guy we're trying to talk about, right? They make Uzziah, his son, king. Uzziah is 16. Uzziah is 16. And Uzziah will reign for a very long time faithfully, well, and with such power that aside from a guy named Solomon and a guy named Jehoshaphat, he's the most powerful king Judah ever has. Uzziah, who does get confusing because in the book of Kings, he's not called Uzziah. He's called a different name. I'm not going to confuse you with that today. But he's lost to history in spite of his greatness. And his greatness begins with his faith in Jesus Christ, his God, his trust in the scriptures and the temple, and then the wisdom which came to him from that that allowed him to do amazing things in his time. Things like conquer all of the Philistines. 
conquer all of Ammon. Remember the Ammonites? They'd rebelled and gotten away. He got it all back. He conquers a rebel group called the Arabs of Gurbaal, which sounds like, I don't know, black ops fun to me. Uh, he builds, uh, builds a seaport city called Elath that's so important later, others will conquer it because it's so valuable. He is revered by Egypt. That is, Egypt won't ever attack him and doesn't want him to pay money. They send him gifts sometimes. That's a rare thing for Judah in its history. Again, Uzziah doing all of this. And then with all of this wisdom, he strengthens and fortifies Jerusalem ahead of its time. He builds multiple high towers at the weak points of the city. And remember, this is a city in the mountains. It's got multiple high towers over its weak points where he constructs what can only be called Beliste. Now, Beliste don't exist for a very long time except apparently here in Uzziah's kingdom where he makes giant bows and arrows that shoot huge, huge pylon-sized spikes down into crowds of people like cannons but before cannons. He did this on multiple towers in Jerusalem. This guy knew what was going on. His army contained 300,000 men-at-arms. That's huge for this time. The logistics alone are beyond imaginable in the age that he's living in. And as a result, to be fair, most scholars believe none of what I just said. Most scholars think it's all a story I just made up. So you have to decide, is the Bible true or not? Because all of that's in the Bible. Every last piece of that's in the Bible. All right? Here's what gets really interesting about Uzziah, though. He's doing great. He's at the pinnacle. He's in faith. It's all going well. And he starts thinking about theology. And he decides that there's an order to things that he can see and no one else can see. And the order goes like this. King, then priest. King, then priest. And so the priest power comes from the king. And so therefore he, as the king, can act like a priest. And so therefore he can walk right into that temple, up to the altar of incense, and burn the incense of priestly prayer even though the high priest and any other guys are saying, don't do it, these things do not belong to you. Now, we can talk about, does that mean the priesthood's over the kingship? I mean, the, the high priest of Melchizedek is just the high priest of the righteous kings. They, they kind of go together in Jesus, ultimately. But at that time, the division of the order was still important for Israel, particularly, to point forward to Christ, and his walking in there was to desacralize. It was to profane the temple. And in the very moment that they're saying, these things do not belong to you, and he's going, oh, yes, they do. I'm going to do it. He breaks out in leprosy. It just pops out of him all over his, his body, which means a number of things. It means he's terribly unclean. It means he's not supposed to go anywhere near the temple, let alone be in it. That means the temple's actually unclean. Now they've got to purify the temple. That's a lot of work for the priests. Now, there's debate about whether or not Uzziah's response here is faithful or not. I'm going to tell you it is. I'm going to tell you the first thing he does. He sees it, and he runs out of the temple as fast as he can. That's because he knows what's going on. He knows he's, he's made the temple unclean. He's going to get it clean as fast as he can. That's what happens next. He continues to reign from quiet with his young son as a provisionary deputy. That guy's name is, again, Jotham. Uh, he continues to reign from quiet for, for many years, decades. And the temple is clean, and things are restored, and things go on fine. Because, again, he was a faithful man overall who then makes a very bad decision. Which, um, oh, and, and I base my, my belief on him, um, his faith, in this language. This is the language of Chronicles. He himself hasted to go out. He didn't sit there and complain about it the way Saul would have. No, he did the right thing right away. He ends up not buried in the tomb of the kings. This is an interesting uh, kind of commentary on all the kings whenever you read these stories. Where they're buried matters. If they get buried in the tomb of the kings, this is, this is good. 
Now, this is normal. This is the lineage as it should be. If they're not in the tomb of the kings, they're probably not a faithful king at all, or this is a very unique one. He's not in the tomb, but he's right next door. So they didn't put him outside the city. He's just in a field near the tomb, but he can't go in the tomb because of the leprosy, because of the one thing he did, right? He has a limited temporal reality, even though his eternal reality is the same as yours and mine. His son Jotham, who rules with him and in his stead, we know less about, but we do know he did some pretty amazing things. He builds a new gate on the temple. He erects castles in the desert to guard their flocks. Uh, and it says about him that he did not burn incense in the temple and is buried in the tomb of the kings, which continues the lineage of the son of David in a very healthy way for the sake of the story. So it's in the year that this King Uzziah, this leper, hiding in a corner, ruling through his son, the year that he dies, Isaiah sees and gets commissioned to go preach to the people of that time, the people who are Judah at its most power, powerful in living memory. Uh, everything is going the way that it should, and he comes and preaches to them, you guys aren't listening. That's the message. You guys aren't listening. Everything's going the way that it should, and he says, you guys aren't listening. It's about to stop. You're not listening. And we don't have a lot of that text in Isaiah. It's chapters 1 through 5. Uh, I think that's right. 2 through 6. Um, that's all he gets to do. And in his commission, when you read it, you'll see it says, I'm going to send you to people who won't listen. And you're just going to tell them you're not listening and they're not going to listen more. And it will go on and on until things get worse. That goes all the way through Jotham's reign. And this is a long time, but a short section of the book. Suddenly in chapter 7, we're into this guy named Ahaz who is Jotham's son. And Ahaz, if you don't have it ring a bell, is one of the worst kings Judah will ever have. He is so enamored with the pagan worlds around him and rejecting any idea of Jesus as his God that he will end up taking down the very altar in that holy area, uh, the temple, where Uzziah had been brought to penitence. There is no wrath put on what Ahaz does. He just gets let to do it, which, again, shows how much God hated him. Uh, Ahaz will take down that altar and replace it with an altar that's a replica of the gods of Assyria. Uh, and this has to do with his infatuation with the great kingdom of Assyria, or Asher, as it was pronounced in the ancient world. Uh, you might also recognize that kingdom by its great city, Nineveh. So yeah, Asher, Assyria, Nineveh, all the same thing. And Ahaz is infatuated with them in many ways, but especially this one. He's also very quickly under attack. So he comes into his power as king. He doesn't really care much for you know, the god of his fathers. But he's also being pressured by two kingdoms aligning to the north with a vow. And their vow is this. We shall abolish the son of David's throne. So no matter how much Ahaz may or may not like Jesus, he's still on the throne from David, right? And so now he's aligned with Jesus, whether he likes it or not, which is how chapter 7, 8, 9 turn out ultimately in his favor as a king. Uh, that said, who's attacking him? From the north, you have the king of Israel at this time, a guy named Pekah, who will be so brutal that he will kill 120,000 Judean soldiers. Remember that army of 300,000? One third get destroyed in a fight with Pekah. And then he takes captive 200,000 women and children. They're being taken back to the north as slaves when a prophet named Oded calls them all to repentance, reminds them they're brothers, and at least the slave women and children get to go free, although the 100,000 are still dead. That's Pekah attacking from the north, and from the other side north, he has what is called Aram in most of the texts. Aram is also Damascus. 
So think Nineveh, Assyria, Damascus, Aram, and then Syria, without the A on the front, is also what Aram is sometimes called. That makes things confusing. This war where Aram, Damascus, is also attacking Ahaz from the other side is called the Syrio-Ephraimitish War, as if that's not confusing enough. But put yourself in Ahaz's position. You've inherited a strong kingdom that is weakening. You have multiple enemies attacking you from two different sides. What are you supposed to do? And here shows up this guy named Isaiah who says, trust in Jesus, it'll all work out. And he's like, yeah, I think I'm going to write a letter. I'm going to write a letter across the field. These two guys are right here. Here's me. Who's the country on the other side? That's Nineveh. That's Assyria. Write a letter. Dear Tiglath-Pileser, you're my favorite hero king ever. Here's half of the gold from my temple. My God can't save me. You can go. Isaiah says, why'd you write that letter? Why'd you not trust Jesus? Now it's all going to go bad for you. And you'll get a sign of this. Do you want the sign? And he won't ask for the sign. So you get this language about Emmanuel, right? This is chapter 7 um, and chapter 9. Uh, to, to us, a child is born. Chapter 9, verses 3 and 7. Uh, so if you want to look something up this week to remind you of this part of the story, chapter 9, verses 3 and 7. To us, a child is born. We hear that at Christmas time. Uh, that was spoken to Ahaz to say to him that even though even though you're reaching for Assyria, for foreign help rather than to your God, God is going to be with this country anyway for the sake of David's throne. All right, so the thing about sin is it doesn't always blow back on you right away. So Ahaz ends up living a pretty peaceful life. And the real problems don't come about until he dies and his son Hezekiah comes to power. By this time again, there is very little worship of Jesus anywhere in Judah at all. If you do, you're doing it quietly in your home. You're not doing it in public or certainly not in the high places where they're offering sacrifices to all these other gods. Hezekiah, as a young man again, under 20, around 20, immediately begins a reform movement where he puts back everything the way that it's supposed to be. And it goes very well. He begins to gain wealth, he gains in prosperity, he's known for his wisdom. The war to the, to the north has actually stopped because Assyria has crushed both Israel and Damascus, making them part of Assyria, so they no longer are a threat. And now Assyria is also moving down to attack Egypt. But then this other thing starts happening. The better things get in Jerusalem, the worse things get on your borders as Assyria begins to take areas for itself. And bit by bit, all of Judah gets swallowed by Assyria while King Hezekiah continues to make reforms at the behest of Isaiah the prophet in Jerusalem, this city. Until, in fact, there is a quarter or a third of the army of Assyria marshaled right outside the gates of Jerusalem and no help coming from anywhere ever. And Hezekiah is looking down on it and Isaiah is listening to it. And this guy they call the Rabshakeh is one of my favorite evil people in the Bible, Rabshakeh. This guy is the voice of Tiglath-Pileser. Tiglath-Pileser is off managing the battle somewhere between Egypt and Judah. He's not on the front line. But this guy, Rabshakeh, is like his ambassadorial messenger with big flags and fancy stuff to say, I speak for the king. Well, kind of like I wear for Jesus, actually. Um, so Rabshakeh comes and he starts talking to the whole place in Hebrew. He starts saying, your God can't save you. Hezekiah has lied to you. You're going to eat your own children or we'll put hooks in your nose and drag you off to the slave pits. Why don't you throw down Hezekiah and we'll, we'll talk a deal in Hebrew. And the, the guard's are like, stop talking in Hebrew. 
It's like, what are you talking about? I'm in charge. I'm going to talk however I want. My God has sent me to destroy you, and your God can't stop us. And that's where things go wrong for Rapsuka. He was God's avenger, actually, all the way up to it. His day has, all the way up to the moment he said Jesus couldn't stop him. And about that time, again, Hezekiah is listening to Isaiah saying, what? What? I did everything you said. And Isaiah says, go pray one more time. Hezekiah goes into the temple and he prays. He prays his heart out. You can read about that one in chapters, uh, oh, did I write that one down? I didn't. It's 37 through 39 as the story of Hezekiah praying in the temple. Chapters 37 through 39. Um, he prays. He asks God to save him. And that night, as the Bible tells the story, the angel of the Lord and or with him, the entire armies of the heavenly host, the fiery chariots and warriors of Zion, without a single human being affecting it, go through the tents of these troops of Assyria that surround Jerusalem and slaughter them all. A small contingent, including Rabshakeh, escape. They get back to Tiglath-Pileser, who has just received word from home that there's another war on his other front. In fact, treason and traitors at home. Oh, no. And he goes back home. It'll take him a couple weeks. But he gets there, and he goes into his church to pray, and his own sons murder him from behind. And Hezekiah is sitting back there in Jerusalem. They're opening the gates. They're looking at a bunch of dead bodies. They're beginning to take the pillage and the spoil, and they begin to rebuild Jerusalem. His reign goes very well from this point. He continues to restore and reform the entire area, so much so that when he, in fact, comes to his deathbed, Hezekiah's deathbed, and just in old age, it's his time to die, um, uh, he calls Isaiah to him, who's still alive. Remember, Isaiah's been around a long time by this point, right? Uh, but Isaiah comes to him, and he says, Isaiah, why am I going to die? Didn't I do the right thing? Didn't I live a good life? Why am I going to die? And it's an interesting and fair question, and yet it, the lesson I think we're supposed to learn from this is that it's, it's best just to die, actually. It really is. Uh, he, why am I going to die? Uh, Isaiah says, well, the Lord has heard your prayer, and he will add 15 years to your life. And remember, everything's gone great up to this point. No problems with Hezekiah's room. Now he gets more time. Shortly after this, some envoys come, some ambassadors from a place called Babylon. He doesn't know much about Babylon. He figures they're okay. And so he shows them almost everything he owns. Okay, these were scouts. These were scouts for a raiding party. That's what these guys were. Yeah? Dumb move, Hezekiah. If you died, guess what? Babylon doesn't know you're there. Oh, wait, there's more. A little bit later, just before he dies, he gives birth, or implants in his, one of his wives, uh, the seed which will become a son whose name is Manasseh. Manasseh is the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. Never born if he doesn't ask for more life. Wow. Of course, the story would have gone on somehow. We know the Lord has a plan. This plan is that we learn in all of this, but you can see here that a good long life ended is maybe a good long life ended. And a good long life prolonged is sometimes not a good long life anymore. It's wisdom for our day, for sure. The most sad part of all of this is guess who kills Isaiah? Manasseh. In his reign of bloody terror, where he slaughtered many prophets. And as the tradition goes, of course, the scholars and skeptics will poo-poo the tradition. The way that Isaiah died is what I consider by far the most terrifying thing that could happen to a human being. Forget drowning. Forget flaying. Flaying sounds pretty bad. Being sawn in two without electricity sounds horrifying to me. I can't, I can't get it out of my head. I pray, actually, every time I come across this story, Jesus, please, not that one. Just anyone, not that one. That's how Isaiah died. At the hands of Manasseh. 
After all of these years, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. He preached against the people who wouldn't repent. He preached and the king did repent. He saw the glory of God work to rebuild a civilization around them while they waited for the final king. And then he saw all of it slip away and the evil hungers of human greed. And then he went home. He went home. And his glory is, is well, one to pray that ours would understand. And that his testimony and his witness would be one that we do not miss. And so with that, uh, for the last few moments here, what I want to do is give you some other texts in Isaiah from his whole preaching ministry that you can just go to this week. I just want you to grab one or two. Right? Don't try to catch all of this. But go to one of these this week that sparks your intention, uh, attention and just, just read it. And maybe mark that place in your Bible somehow with a ribbon or, or some other item. You can fold the page if you're into that kind of thing. But make it so you can get back to this one text you find. Right? If you grab one of these, you're like, I like that one. Make it so whenever you go to your Bible, you can open it right away. And I'll show you what I did in mine. I've been using this Bible for a year and a half now and trying to do just this, to, to learn areas of the Bible well enough that I just go to them and they just fill me whenever I want something to fill me. And so you can see maybe on the side, on here you can, um, I've taken a little painter's tape. And I just put a little tiny bit of painter's tape. Let's pull this one up in here. Can you see this? Just on the sides of that page. That's Psalm 37. And go right to it. Now, I've done it with like three spots so I don't get too confused. <laughs> yeah? So maybe you do something like that. Put a sticker there. I don't know. You know, it's your Bible. Make it your own. The idea here is grab one of these texts or two and try to look them up this week and read them. So uh, you have a very brief one in Chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, which is the opening vision. And I'm going to read it to you now because it is very short. I'll just talk right past it. Chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 says this. Come now. Let us reason together, says Jesus Christ. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the food of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, there's some judgment there, but there's also that beautiful bit about how your sins are forgiven. And that's always the case. That's, again, 1, 18 through 20. We mentioned his call. That's chapter 6, 1 through 13, the vision of him high and lifted up. Um, chapter 9, 3 to 7, I mentioned, uh, where it says... Uh, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as at the day of Midian. For every boot of tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Man, that's good stuff. That's uh, 9, 3 through 7. Chapter 11, 1 through 10. I won't read it all, but I'll give you the highlight here. Um, 
Uh, there shall come forth from the shoot of the stump of Jesse, and a branch of its roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So think Advent and Jesse's stump and that little shoot coming up. That's chapter 11, 1 to 10. Jumping way into the middle of the book, chapter, I think it's 24 to 27, is like a mini end of the world. Now, just to touch on that, chapter 26, 1 through 15. A mini end of the world that's really cool. So we're going to get the big one at the end of the book, the lion and the lamb and all that stuff. We'll come to that. This is a different one. But I really recommend you just, I'm not going to give you a taste, just go find it. You know, uh, Isaiah 26, 1 to 15. Try that this week. 15 verses. Chapter 40, you will have a memory of. It shows up in Advent often. It says, comfort, comfort you, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her warfare is ended. Hopefully that sounds a little familiar. So chapter 41 through 14 is a section on comfort. And again, forget Isaiah, forget the stories. Just think, I need comfort. Wouldn't it be nice to have a ribbon in your Bible when you need comfort to go to the verses that tell you about the comfort you have in Jesus? Yeah? Isaiah 41 to 14. Isaiah 43 is really powerful. It's about being washed clean. Let's leave that right there. 43, 1 to 3. You only need three verses for that one. Oh, it's short. I'll say it. Now thus says the Lord who created you, Jacob, who formed you, Israel. Fear not. I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You're mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I, Jesus Christ, am your God. The Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Isaiah 43, 1 to 3 there. Isaiah 53 is a good example of a major section in the back called often the Man of Sorrows or the Servant Songs. There's these five servant songs. For a good introduction to that, these are songs about what Jesus is going to be like as he dies for us. Uh, Isaiah 53, 1 through 12 is a great introduction to the servant songs. Isaiah 53, 1 to 12. Isaiah 60 should sound a little familiar. Arise, shine, for your light has come. It's very epiphany sounding there. Isaiah 60, 1 to 7 is a nice little thing to read. And then Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. I'm going to read some of this to you because it's just too good. For behold... I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For the days of my people shall be like the days of a tree. Before I call, they will answer. And then verse 25 is the one you're probably waiting for. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says Jesus Christ. Isaiah 65, that's verse 25. Verse 25. 
If you do want to look up that account of his death, possibly under Manasseh, that is 2 Kings 21, 16. And again, the encouragement, grab one of them. Look it up this week. Be encouraged by it while you stick with Psalm 23, Psalm 1, and the proverb of the day. And just like that, St. Paul Lutheran Church, we're reading the Bible together. After we've prayed to God for wisdom, it's a guaranteed success the way God sees it. In the name of Jesus, what a great church.